0: Okay, let's talk about Canaanite Jerusalem. before what we know as Jews, Christians, and Muslims were in Jerusalem. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, basically the early history of Jerusalem. Before David, and David, you're always kind of a nice round number, about 1,000 BCE. There should be an E after that C. By the way, um, you guys know the difference between B.C.E. and B.C.E. and A.D.? Anytime I refer to B.C.E., that's B.C., B.C. is usually used before Christ, but not everybody's a Christian, or science usually, certainly doesn't debate things that way. But they don't want to renumber all their calendars. Right? Right. So what science uses is B.C.E., and they call it before the common era. And they just say, all right, sometime around that time that that guy named Christ was living, we'll, we'll cut it off. Now, you should know that Christ was born, <coughs> Jesus, this guy named Jesus from Nazareth, was born when? Before yeah. No, something like 5 to 8 B.C. So Jesus was actually born before Christ. Think about that. Jesus was born somewhere between 5 and 8 B.C. I wrote an article on this uh, on on the web. It's on a, on a, a website called uh, Bible and Interpretation, and I explain how we get this. I can't do it here in this class. It takes up too much time. But basically, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., and according to the tradition, Jesus was born while Herod the Great was alive. So Jesus had to have been born sometime 5 to 7 <coughs> B C. This is why I say it's not really tied to Jesus. It's just kind of a nice rough number. Or so when you hear me say B C E, that's B C. When you hear me when you hear me say C E, that's A D, Anno Domini, right? Year of our Lord. The problem was the Pope who was redoing the calendar messed up. He forgot the calendar year and he didn't set it right. So, and then they changed calendars, blah blah blah. All that is to say Jesus was born sometime 5 and 8 BCE. Um, but we still use the BCE and CE as, as our dates. So when you see this, it's BCE and BC are the same thing. CE and AD are the same thing. And on Wikipedia, don't go changing all my BCEs and CEs to AD and BC, because you think it's some kind of religious statement. It's not, it's science. So, all right, enough said about that. Jerusalem before David. We actually had evidence in the Calcolithic period. This is like 4,000 BCE, right? Um, of settlements, and that, and we have continuous settlement at this site all the way down through to today. So you've got 6,000 years of settlement in this place we now call Jerusalem. Um, why did they choose to settle this town? Um, one, we've talked about there was water, not a lot of water, probably only enough water to support about 2,500 people. Not a lot of water, and they go on spring. In the Emeglephahoum, you have the uh, capacity for agriculture, and of course you do have a little watershed highway, uh, basically Jerusalem sits in the mountains, and, and we saw this on the map, and to the west is, it falls down into the island, into the Mediterranean, and then to the east it falls down into what? The Jordan Rift Valley and into the Dead Sea. So it sits on top of this ridge, and so they call it the watershed, like the Continental divide. Okay. Um, and so here you can see the little home spring that, that feeds it. So it did have some water. It did have a high lake, but it, it's certainly not the kind of stuff that you would think would be needed um, to support a major city. Um, again, you yeah, don't just take my word for it. We have artifacts um, coming from an old burial tomb near the Gihon spring that date to about 3200 BCE. So this is pottery, and pottery is how most archaeologists date things. I don't mean like... <coughs> would you like to go out to dinner? I mean, they, they use pottery to date them, uh, remains, right? Although I know some archaeologists would rather date pottery than date people. <laughs> that's another story. They're usually in the basement, somebody's they use animal book, um, So you have this, this old style pottery that's different from the pottery um, that we see in later periods. And if you think about it, this is a good way to, to date things, right? Um, if, heaven forbid, um, we have this big 7.2 earthquakes that are going on, all around us, if one hits right here, if one hits right here and uh, your dorm or your apartment or your house where you live were to collapse, what would they find? What would they think about you as people if all we knew about you was is what was left uh, in your bedroom? About half of you were, about half of you were logging on Facebook and shutting down, and I, I deleted the delete, video, delete, right? It's you know what's in your bed? that's how we do things, right? We only really know about people what we can dig up, and we find something with a name on it, and we go, ooh, what do we what do we know about this person? What do we find in their room? Well, one of the things that we can we can use to date things is pretty accurate, is pottery, <coughs> right? So if we found a site that had a bunch of uh, goldenrod and avocado-colored Tupperware, that's different than what we have today, right? We have you now we have Ziploc containers, plastics, or or if you've ever registered for, or had a parent register for uh, for a wedding, right? And they register for different plates. China, uh, plates, silverware things evolve over time, right? That, you know, we used to use goblets and, you know, big heavy utensils, and now we have fine utensils, and they get cheaper and easier to make. So pottery is, and this has been the case for a long, long time, styles change. We can use pottery to date certain things. And that's just uh, uh, a, does it do this? So one of these days, I'll be smart enough to do it ahead of time. Okay. Some of the other things we found in Jerusalem that tells us a little bit about the early history are execration texts. Okay, These date to about 1900 B.C.E. And what they are, they're, they're kind of early voodoo dolls. If I can, it's not exactly what a voodoo doll is, but it's kind of, let me, let me give you an example. Today, if you, um, if you really wanted to curse someone, Besides just calling them a bunch of names, right? What are the different ways you could curse someone? And, and I'm not just talking about you so love me make onions cry, or you, know, sorry, you, you could be a modern art masterpiece, things like but that. that. Not, ju- not just not just making fun of people, but to, the ways to really curse people. In antiquity, what you did was you wrote their name on something, and then you smashed it. Right? That's how you curse people. Because not everybody could write. So those who could write, writing had this magical sense to it. I mean, think about it. Um, what's one of the what's one of the idioms that's used uh, in religious context to talk about people who are going to heaven or to paradise? What do we say about their name? It's written where? Written in the book of life. Man, <laughs> all right. So we talk about it's written in the book of life, or you know, or how do you get into a how do you get into a club? You're, you're down on Sunset, right? You want to get into the club, and you show up, and there's hundred people behind the rope, and you know you're cool if what mm-hmm. if your name's on the list, right? If your name is on the list, you're you're special somehow, okay? My name's written in the book of life, or you're in the registry of some sort. Writing had a magical power. So what people would do is if I if I didn't like uh, let's say Kyle back there, I would say Kyle and maybe I make a figurine like this and I write his name and I was like, I really don't like you and I throw it down and I'd smash it and take that but there was something magical about breaking someone's name up just like there was something magical about erasing the name of God Right? there's something about writing someone's name that means a lot okay. I don't care if you call me names but I, I really don't like it if you take my name in vain Right? that's even one of the commandments don't take the Lord's name in vain so someone's name was a big deal. So what they would do is they write these names and they break them in person. Well, we found some of these, okay? Ritual curse texts with the name of Egypt's enemies. There were Egyptian texts, written in hieroglyphics on clay figurine, uh, figurines. They were originally from Saqqara, Egypt. And one of these execration texts uh, include the, the equivalent of the name Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you can hear it. Jerusalem, okay? So we have texts with the, the name or the early name of Jerusalem on them. And they have some of the names, uh, uh, Shafsan, um some of these names are some of the rulers of Jerusalem. So there's some evidence that Jerusalem was a known entity about as early as uh, 2000 B.C. We also have um, fortifications <coughs> discovered near the Gihon Spring. Right, Water is the most important thing to the city, so what you're going to do is protect that water uh, above all else. So they would build these large gates, and here's a reconstruction of it. Kathleen Canyon, Dame Kathleen Canyon was a very famous female archaeologist. Um, she discovered a wall and a tower near the Dihon Spring and dated it to about 1800 uh, B.C.E. Okay. So on the eastern slope of the city of David, and this could be the fountain gate that's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. could be the same gate. So obviously we have early, uh, not just text mentioning Jerusalem, but we have evidence of building, and building specifically around the water to protect the city. And I'm going to try not to go so fast, since I've, I've noticed that in a couple of blogs. So. Okay? Keep in mind, if you miss anything, you got it on video and you've got it on printout. You can always go back and get it there. Um, here's an actual actual picture of it you can see this you can actually see the stones the squared off stones that form the tower um, let me show you I'm going to show you a lot of pictures uh, today um, and then there's the pool near the home spring from above All right, let me show you a better picture here here's the wall that connects with the tower so anytime you see a large tower or a square thing rising up and a wall obviously you're dealing with a gate. Some some kind of uh, defensive structure. Now um, we get a reference to this in the New Testament, in the Christian New Testament, in Luke 13. Okay, um, Jesus, and we won't go into this. Jesus was answering questions about mixing of blood <coughs> and mixing between Jews and Galileans, things like that. And they ask him, um, why do you think these guys suffered in the way? Were they? You know, why do people suffer? It, it's a it's, not just a question we ask today, why do people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do worse things happen to some people than others? Is it because they're sinners or is it because they're worse than others? And he said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you'll all die. Right, so everybody should act nice. Don't try to see what you can get away with, right? Um, or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Right, so apparently there was a tradition that said, boy, you must be really sinful. You must have done something really bad if you're walking by the wall and it just falls on you and kills you. Right? You must have done something really bad for you know, God the go wall. But all I, all I want to point out is there's a reference to the Tower of Siloam uh, there in Luke 13. Okay. Now we also have, and these are fun, um, other early uh, non-biblical texts called the Amarna letters. The Tel El Amarna from Egypt. Letters. They're written. This one, uh, some of them are written about 1350 BCE, and they're written in cuneiform. You guys know cuneiform. You can take this as a language here. You can take the different, you know, you can take Sumerian and Akkadian and these things. But it looks like pigeon. It looks like uh, chicken scratch, right? But it's basically all. And I never took it, so I'm not going to even pretend to know it. But it's, it's all based on wedges. You had a, a, a clay tablet, and then you have a triangular-shaped stylus. And you just make triangles in the clay. And the order and, and the shape in which you made them um, uh, was different. Was different. The first symbols, nouns and, and verbs and things, and then became syllables. So as language moved from pictographs, like hieroglyphics, into syllables, that is a shape, right, this, this letter here doesn't mean Anything, right? It's a T. It it represents a sound, right? But that wasn't always the case. It used to be, you know, you would just draw. If you wanted to say the word I, you'd draw an I, right? And then we decided, no, 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 we should use symbols to represent sounds. But that's linguistics, and you can take that later. Anyways, they're written in cuneiform. And they're written from the rulers in Canaan. Canaan, by the way, is modern-day Israel-Palestine, from Lebanon down to Egypt, um, to, uh, to Egyptian pharaohs, in this case, Akhenaten. Specifically, we have six letters of Abdiheba. <coughs> Heba, or Abdi-Heba, sometimes you'll uh, hear it. And he was the ruler of Jerusalem. And what this guy did was he wrote letters basically saying, help me. Egypt was still a superpower. He's a little client king in a little in a little uh, city of Jerusalem, and he would say, "Hey, I'm under attack. Why don't you send some soldiers? Why don't you send some army? Why don't you help me? And I'll continue to pay you tribute." Okay. So these little client kings would ask for help from their patrons, and then they would they would uh, send tax money and, and you know and all praise them and, and be supportive of them. He wanted help. In fact, let me show you two other pieces. We also know because we find these uh, libation trays, right? You see this groove here in the tray? So what you could do is, not everybody would, uh, could afford um, to give a, a large uh, offering, right? You couldn't afford to take your sheep, your best sheep, and sacrifice it to God. Not everybody could afford sheep. So what you did was, and I kid you not, this is the this is the ancient equivalent of formula out for my homies, right? You would take some kind of wine, some kind of oil, and you would pour that out as your sacrifice before God. All right, so when you see it on the music videos, little do they know this has you know, been going on for 3,000 years. You would pour out drink for God. And the idea was that God would drink it or taste it or something. And you pour it out here, it would collect here and then drain to here. And keep in mind that in most uh, religious traditions, the priests ate the sacrifices. So after you would come and do your sacrifice to God, and say, you know, God, here, I hope this smell, You know, it's like a barbecue, right? You smell the barbecue, you get hungry. I hope this smell pleases you, God. Here's some meat. Then the priests would come along, take the meat, and that's how they ate. They would, they would eat the sacred meat, yeah, that's how they ate. And there were very strict rules on what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, and what they were supposed to <coughs> take and what they were supposed to leave for the deity, what they could drink, what they couldn't pick, things like that. So we find these libation trays, we find hieroglyphic um, inscriptions. So we know that there's on both ends, right? We got these Egyptian Alamana letters. The letters were discovered in Tel Amarna in Egypt, but they were written from Jerusalem, saying, Help me. Here's one of them. Um, this is Alamana letter two eighty seven, from Abdi Heba to um, Pharaoh. Say to the king, right and it's written in this very form when they translate it into English. Message of Abdi your servant, I followed the feet of my Lord seven times and seven times. So if you ever, guys, have you ever make a mistake to your girlfriend or your wife or boyfriend, and uh, you really want to, you know, you really want to say I'm really sorry, you just walk up and say I fall at your feet seven times and seven times. <laughs> and after they look at you all weird, you can explain to them this is actually an ancient way of saying I submit, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, whatever you want, I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, consider the entire affair, and I won't go into it. Blah 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 blah. All these guys were attacking. And they're attacking, and there are some references to some other cities, Gezer, Ashkelon, Ashkelon, uh, Lachish, these are big, major cities, (coughs) bigger and more important than Jerusalem at the time. And look, they're coming and taking these cities, um, uh, so make the king, he's he's begging the pharaoh, provide archers and send the archers against these men that commit crimes against the king, my lord. (coughs) If this year there are archers, then the lands and the Hazanu, these are the other kings, will belong to the king. Basically, if you don't help me, these other guys are going to take your land. So he's trying to talk them into sending some help. right? And, and his argument is, if I'm not king anymore, if I get defeated, these guys aren't going to serve you like I serve you, so help me. right? And then he says, But if there are no archers, then the king will neither have lands or client kings. You won't have land, and you won't have people supporting you. And he says, Consider Jerusalem. Basically, help me, be one, Right? <laughs> <laughs> You're my only hope. So Jerusalem. This is, and, and it goes on and on and on. Okay. So we have evidence, hard evidence, that kings in Egypt, about 1350, 1400 B.C.E., uh, were sending letters of help and assistance to Pharaoh. So there were people living in Jerusalem <coughs> long before, uh, you know, the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. The earliest, and we've looked at this story already, the earliest biblical account of Jerusalem is in Genesis 14. And we talked about this. Um, uh, Melchizedek was this priest king that lived in uh, Salem. Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. And Abram was on a rescue mission, and as he walked by, uh, verse 18, the king, Melchizedek, or Melchizedek uh, of Salem, Brought out bread and wine, who was the priest of El Elyon, of uh, God Most High. Right? And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And, Abraham, and Abram gave him one tenth of everything. So this is the earliest reference to Salem. This is long before David, Solomon, all this stuff. This is when there was some other priest king named Melchizedek who lived there who blessed Abram keep this name in mind because we're going to look at it later. Uh, Once David takes control of Jerusalem, they start to make appeals back to 27. And they look very enigmatic unless you know this early passage here in Genesis 14. Any questions so far? Okay, now, we begin to also see political history, right? So we're talking about, when I talk about the time of the patriarchs, we're talking about pre-Exodus, biblical stories, and post-Exodus biblical stories, right? So after the Exodus, kind of the Patriarch era goes away, and then you get into the conquest of the time that's called the Conquest of Canaan, and then the time of Joshua and the Judges. Joshua and Judges, okay? And we get some claims, and these are biblical books, these are in your Bible. Joshua Judges are, are books in your Bible. The uh, no, Hebrew Bible. Uh, in Joshua 10, we get this claim. When King Adonized of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had taken I so Joshua and these Israelites are starting to come into this new land, the land that they believe God promised them, that He promised Abram. Remember way back in the day? Okay. So they're coming in and they're fighting. They're gonna fight and they're gonna take the land away from the people who already live there, according to the story. And when Adonized of Jerusalem, so he's the existing king in Jerusalem. Heard what Joshua was doing, um, and what he had done to Ai and his king, what he had done to Jericho and his king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. So basically, he's wiping out all these cities, and one of them, another little city, goes, We give up. We'll pay you whatever you want. Just don't wipe us out. We'll serve you. We'll do whatever. Just don't take us out. So they're starting to make peace with them. Um, so King Adonazedic of Jerusalem sent a message to King Hoham of Hebron, uh, and on and on, all these different kings, king, uh, Debir of Eglon. Um, verse 4, come up and help us. So here's another letter from he- of help, right? Come up and help us. Let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. And the five kings of the Amorites, king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmuth, Lahish, and Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and camped against Gibeon, and made war against him. What's one of the downsides of of having somebody surrender to you and make peace and say, hey, we'll, we'll serve you, is if someone else comes and attacks them, you've got to come and defend them. So now the Israelites are kind of obligated to come and defend Gideon. So Joshua came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who inflicted a great slaughter at them at Gideon, chased them by the way of the ascent uh, of Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and down So basically Joshua defeats these five kings and their armies. Joshua and his army and God uh, defeat these five uh, kings and armies according to the story. Verse 40, I want you to pay attention to the conclusion of the story. OK? So <coughs> Joshua defeated the whole land, everyone. The hill country and the Negev uh, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings read it. He left no one remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God had commanded. Is there any question what Joshua did, according to the story, in the Bible, right? In Joshua chapter 10, he killed everyone. It it really is this idea of ethnic cleansing. They went in and wiped out everyone. They were commanded, they believed, by God, to wipe everyone out. You take no prisoners, with that one exception of Gibeon, they didn't wipe out, they made peace with them. But the text says Joshua wiped out everyone. Any questions? Now let's look at the next slide. If we look at Joshua fifteen sixty three, it's the same book, five chapters later. Or we look at Judges chapter one, we get a different story. So Joshua chapter ten says he wiped up everyone. No one left was breathing. Right? No, no one breathing left. Um, let me jump ahead one slide and come back to this one. Okay, Let me jump ahead one slide. Here's Joshua, just five chapters in the same book. Same Bible, right? But the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. Now which one is right? Joshua 10, where the text obviously says that Joshua wiped everyone out, or... Joshua 15, where he says, yeah, but there were some people he left behind. Or how about the next book, the book of Judges, chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? Wait, time out. I thought there were no more Canaanites. Joshua 10 said he wiped them all out, but not according to Judges 1. Look at verse 8. The people of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They put it to the sword and set it on fire. So scholars, obviously, and a lot of people have problems with this, because one text in the Bible claims that they wiped everybody out, and two other texts say, nah, well, they, they missed some. Okay? And it appears that some of them were missed, right? Look at verse 21. But the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites, right, who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem along the Benjamites to this day. So you've got one text saying he wiped them out and one text saying he didn't wipe them out and uh, archaeologically and historically we have to go with he didn't wipe them all out the, job, the claim made in Joshua 10 was some idealistic claim about how powerful God was but it wasn't historically true because not only does the Bible it, but you've got archaeological evidence you've got people living in Jerusalem and when we get to 2 Samuel pardon me, uh, the books of Samuel repeated in Chronicles we said that David has to conquer Jerusalem <coughs> again Right? So there's lots of text about the conquest of Jerusalem. Let me go back to that earlier slide. There are three models, if you will, of how the people that call themselves the Israelites, or the Jews, got to this land called Israel. Okay? And one is the conquest or non-conquest, which is what we have just looked at. Okay? The idea being that a foreign people either came out of Egypt after the Exodus or came from somewhere, and came in and conquered the land. Obviously, that has gone on for ages. There have always been people, as long as there have been different peoples, there have been people conquering other peoples. And the Bible gives us, the Hebrew Bible tells us, that's how the Israelites got into the land. They took it from someone else. But other scholars have argued, well, you can't just trust what the biblical text says. Um, There's archeological evidence that says that what we know to be the Israelites may have slowly migrated over a long period of time. Some of that evidence includes uh, when Kathleen Kenyon, we already mentioned her as, a, as an archeologist in Jerusalem, uh, when she was digging uh, at Jericho, she found a destruction layer of Jericho, but it didn't coincide with anywhere near the dates that these Israelites were said to come in and do this. So yeah, the city was burned to the ground, but it may have been burned to the ground long before, or it may have been burned to the ground long after. So they they said, and then with the other changes in settlement patterns and with pottery, um, it looks as if, some people argue in some places, that these guys migrated there over a couple hundred years, and then that's how they got there. So it wasn't an immediate, quick conquest, it was a long migration. And still others argue that the people who called themselves the Israelites in Canaan were always there. It was some kind of internal rebellion or redefinition of the people. So, they were Amorites or Canaanites, right? Um, and just over a period of time, they began to distinguish themselves from other Canaanites, right? this happens, right? People, uh, very white people, live in, I don't know, England and Scotland and Ireland. And it's kind of all the same descent. But over a couple hundred years, through, they begin to I- identify differently as different peoples, right? So, you have the Irish with their own accent, and you have the, the Scots and the English. French, even though they're all kind of descended from the same people, they kind of see themselves as different. And some uh, archaeologists argue that's what happened. Over time, some of these Canaanites or Amorites began to just see themselves as different from the people in the north or from the people in the south. And they changed their name and became what we know as Israelites, and then invented or uh, inherited some stories of conquest, and that became the history that we have in the Bible. Obviously, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God or you believe that it's historically true, um, you, you wouldn't like that. But that's what a lot of the evidence says. So you have these different theories of how the people called the Israelites, or the Jews, got to Israel. They took it, they slowly emigrated there, or they were always there. And one of the texts, the biblical texts, that supports this last one is in Ezekiel. The, the prophet Ezekiel in the Hebrew Bible uh, is making one, I and mean, he's nuts. The guy's nuts. And Ezekiel is probably the nuttiest of all the prophets. He used to act out his prophecies. So he wouldn't just say, you know, for 300 days you're going to be starving, and then for 100 days there's going to be war. Uh, what he would do is he'd make like a clay model of Jerusalem out in, by, by, by Right? He'd go out there on roadwalk. So let's say he's, in, uh, a prophecy of doom against UCLA, right? So he got to build a model of UCLA put all the different buildings. And then he would do things to the model or just camp out out there. So Ezekiel would like make a model of Jerusalem and then he'd lay on one side of for, it for 300 days. And he'd be, you know the guys that are actually out there screaming at you? You know the preachers that are out there preaching things to you? Just like that, he'd be out there. we look at those guys today and we go, what? what are you talking about? And he'd say, and half of you will be cut away. And to represent that, he'd cut off half of the hair on his head, right? Or he'd eat only a small piece of food every day to, to symbolize how you're going to be when you're under siege eating food rations and stuff. We would just act out and go to Third Street on a Friday night and just watch. That's Ezekiel. <laughs> right? Anyway, one of the things he says, mortal, make known to Jerusalem. So he's making fun of Jerusalem for abominations. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth were in the land of Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite, right? Which is the early equivalent of your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries, right? <laughs> <laughs> that movie gets older every year. Okay, so some people still know that. Right. Let's search for the Holy Grand Life. Right. Um, yeah, he basically says your mother was a Canaanite, your father was an Amorite. Your, your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And then later on he says that again. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite which tells us something right he's making fun of Jerusalem saying yeah you weren't always there in fact I know who your parents were, I know where you came from, the Hittites and the Amorites. those were peoples that were already there in the land alright, that's it, any questions? and we already looked at this slide here and let me actually show you the conquest of Jerusalem this is the last slide of this lecture and we'll talk about David Um, Yeah, I, th- I think that's a possibility as well. I think that there's very clear evidence that some of the peoples who came to be known as the Israelites were already there. I think there's very clear evidence that some of the peoples who came to be known as the Israelites migrated there. And there is evidence of some people <coughs> that they fought. But remember, uh, as is with politics and as is with religion, a lot of times trying to think through all of the different intricacies is too difficult for a lot of people. Or they're too lazy to do it or whatever. I mean, it comes when we get to an election year, right? Very few people take the time to listen to NPR and, to, and think, well, well, what the Democrat says is, on here is on one hand that's good, but on the other hand that's bad. Let me see what the other Republican says. Let me see what the other Democrat says. A lot of times, what do you hear on the ads? Do you hear that? No, they don't have time. So they try to give it to you in know, 30 seconds. So-and-so, you know, uh, uh, Jerry Brown is Satan. He is the <laughs> devil, right? You get this deep voice and you see flames in the background he raised your taxes, he'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some truth to that, but he also might have done some good things. But in a political year, you just hear these sweeping all or none claims. And the Bible tends to do that as well. So that's why you get Joshua 10. And everyone was destroyed. Everything that God promised came true. And then five chapters later, it says, okay, but you know, there, there were some people who still lived there. So it's probably a combination of both. Good question. Let's talk about the conquest of Jebus, or the Jebusite city, which is one of the names in Jerusalem before David took it. Um, anytime you see me put things in parallel, remember I told you earlier, Chronicles repeats the books of Samuel and Kings. So on the right you have, and obviously Chronicles is written after the books of Samuel and Kings. So on the left you have the story as it, as it comes to us in 2 Samuel 5. And on the right, you have the story as it comes to us in 2 Chronicles. Okay, And here's the quick story, and then I'll show you some pictures. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back. There was already this idea that Jerusalem was an impenetrable city. So he says, even the blind, and they weren't into political correctness, obviously, 3,000 years ago. um, they said, even our blind and our lame can repel you from the city. So they were taunting them, right? There's a lot of taunting. There are some great some of the best texts in the Bible are taunts. They're hilarious. They're hilarious. And we look at one when we talk about Hezekiah. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. When when we teach Hebrew, these are the texts that everybody remembers because you get to say, you know, bad words. And that's the one thing I always want to do. You know, they do doing a foreign language, right? Hello, goodbye, and, and stuff like that. <coughs> um, we're not coming here. And David, uh, thinking, David can't get in here. So they were taunting them, right? Uh, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is what they called it, which is now the city of David, which we're going to look at in a second. And David, how did he conquer it? David said, um, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Those whom David hates, basically, he's taunting them back. Okay? Well, we'll take on your land, your blind, and everyone else, right? <laughs> Therefore it is said the blind and the land. They have this expression. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city around from the below inward. Okay? And over here in Chronicles, you get a few extra details that the city is called Jebus, not Jerusalem. <coughs> Before it was Jerusalem, it was called Jebus, or the Jebusite city. And um Whoever attacks the Jebusites, the reward is he gets to be the commander of the army, right? And Joab, or Yoab, um, went up first. He became the chief. So we get the name, not only what the city was before it was called Jerusalem, but the name of the guy who actually climbed up the water shaft, the reverse Shawshank Revolution, right? Climbed (laughs) up the water shaft and took out the city. And surprise, surprise, David made him the commander of the army for his bravery, for his strategery, Right, for all these different things, you guys is that Joe Bond now? Will Pharaoh Jerusalem? For his strategic nature, for his uh, framework. Any questions? So, this is where we'll leave off the pre Canaanite, and now we'll talk about David's Jerusalem. Any questions before we move on?